Okay, so we shift from the polycanon for a few minutes. We'll have a break at 2.30. In case any of you are feeling break intentions. <laughs> we'll have a break in half an hour. Okay. Okay, as I said, there was, a, there was an article that appeared in the New Yorker a couple years back. It's called The Physical Genius. And it described the qualities that they had discovered that people who had mastered physical skills tended to have in common. <clears throat> and the people they used most for examples were Wayne Gretzky, Michael Jordan, Yo-Yo Ma, and the surgeon Charlie, uh, Charlie Wilson at UC San Francisco. And reading through the article, I saw a lot of parallels between the qualities that they were outlining and um, the four bases of power, the four bases of success. First was the element of desire, was that not only did they want to do it, but they actually enjoyed their particular skill. They liked it, it was fun to do. Now why was it fun? They, they said it was because it was the ability to make physical reality correspond to your desire. Now that doesn't come automatically. We'll, we'll go over some of the other stages that they had to go through in order to get there. But this desire, the, the fun part, was based simply on that, that you, can, you learned that you found that you could learn. You try something, you make a mistake, you correct the mistake, the next time around, you've learned. You see yourself getting better and better, more and more precise at it, until ultimately you get, a, you get a, what seems to be just an intuitive feel. It's not so much that there's a feel as that there's the ability to see patterns very quickly, almost pre-verbally. Pre um, they say sometimes Charlie Wilson, when he was operating on the brain, he would do something very unusual. And were people working with him afterwards who said, why did you do that? And he said, well, it seemed to be the obvious thing to do or the right thing to do at that time. That's the positive side. They also tell stories about Charlie, Charlie Wilson. He, like most brain surgeons, had problems with aneurysms. I didn't realize this, but most brain surgeons really have problems with aneurysms, so don't ever get an aneurysm, okay? Because even the brain surgeons are kind of scared by them. So he decided he needed to practice. So how do you practice? Well, he found out there was a way that you can take rats and induce aneurysms in rats. And then every day after work, he would go up and he would operate on the rats. And so he got that he was better and better and better at it. And he could, of course, check up on how the rats were doing and sort of learn, perfect his technique. Until he got to the point where he realized that you know, he pretty much mastered the skill. And the only reason he continued to do this was because he was enjoying it. That's when he figured he had to stop. <laughs> but there has to be that element of enjoyment. Yo-Yo Ma talks about how he worked, worked at perfection for a while. He, in, he worked for an entire year on a Brahms sonata, cello and piano sonata. And he got it down, so it was technically perfect. And he got in the middle of the concert when he was performing, and he realized he was thoroughly bored. He said it would have been nothing just to get up and walk away at that point, which he realized, okay, technical perfection is not where it's at. It's more the expression that goes into it and the element of spontaneity. And we'll get to that a little bit later as to how spontaneity fits into skills. The negative side of the motivation that they discovered was that these people who were really very highly skilled had a very practical-minded obsession with the possibility and consequences of failure. You know, seeing where failure would be possible and what the bad consequences would be. 
Now, of course, for brain surgeon, the consequences are obvious. Somebody dies or they're paralyzed for life. For sportsmen, of course, it's loss. But still, they get obsessed when they don't want to lose because of a stupid mistake. And so they practice again and again. And this is the motivation for their practice. So it's not just the joy of doing it, but also realizing if you don't do it well, there's going to be serious consequences. And that's what motivates people to get really good. The second element they discovered was that these people practice, practice, practice. And just keep doing it over and over and over again. Now, the whole point of practice is not simply the mechanical repetition of what you're doing, but it's also it's a, it's a way of changing the way you perceive the task so that you get more and more efficient at it. To see what you're doing that's not efficient, where there's wasted motion, where there's wasted effort, where you can do things more quickly, more efficiently. And relative to this is a book that I discovered a little while back. It's a, it's a guidebook to learning how to swim. It's called the Total Immersion Method. And, um, the Total Immersion Method? <laughs> Somebody had a good sense of humor. Anes, could you pass me that tea? Just one. And it outlined how you should approach practice. So that's not just rote wrote effort. And the, the analysis of his practice, this man's analysis of how you should practice to be a good swimmer had an awful lot of good implications for meditation. One, okay, you select the workload that you're going to apply to the mind. The mind has to put out some effort in some direction. Um, but you're very careful about what kind of effort you put it through. You don't overtax it. Now, if you're working a muscle, it's obvious to see, you know, and if you overtax it, the muscle, the muscle phrase. When you're meditating, if, it's, if you're overworking your mind, after a while, the meditation gets so dry, you just can't even think of doing it. So you have to be very careful about the level of effort that you apply to the mind to begin with. Once you find that you can get, get it to do that particular level of stress, that particular workload, then you progressively overload it, add more on. In the case of meditation, it might be meditating for longer periods of time, trying to get the mind to be more and more still. The third mark of good practice is what they call specificity. In other words, you have specific tasks that you work on, which might be for a particular meditation session, you say, okay, I'm going to work on the breath right at this one point and get really good at that one point. Or I'm going to work on making the breath more refined, or I'm going to work on making my awareness of the body, the full body, more and more continuous. In other words, you see, you try to gauge you know, where your problems are and then assign one particular task per meditation session rather than just jumping in and say, okay, I'm going to start from the beginning with beginner's mind. doesn't work. Have a specific test that you apply yourself to. The fourth quality is consistency. You keep at it every day. And then if you've evidently done, done any work with fitness, you know that if you keep fit for a couple months and then you let it go for six weeks, you're miserable. And it takes an awful lot of effort to get back up to where you were. But sometimes just a little bit every day, every day, every day, it works to maintain what you need. Then the fifth one is to work on your, the efficiency of what you're doing. Once you've gotten to a pretty good level, you've 
got all of the basic skills needed for meditation under control. Then you work on polishing your technique. And many times what this means is learning how to get the mind to settle down more quickly. For often us, we, we have a sort of a mental picture. You're going to sit for an hour, and you know how long it takes the mind to sort of settle down here, settle down there. It has this kind of path that it follows. And next time you meditate, you start settling down here, settling down there, and follow, following the path. There's a story that Conrad Lawrence tells about some a goose that he raised. Did I ever tell you this story? Um, Conrad Lawrence was a biologist, lived in Vienna, someplace in Austri- Austria. I think it was Vienna. Anyway, he had this goose that, laid, that had some goslings, and the mother goose died. And one of the goslings survived. And so Conrad Lawrence fed the gosling, raised it, and of course it fixated on Conrad Lawrence as its mother. And so throughout the summer, he kept the gosling outside, fed it out there. And then as winter came along, he realized he had to bring the, gos- the goose, by this time it was a goose, had to bring it inside the house. And where he lived, you went in the front door, and there was a long hall that went to a window, and then halfway down the hall there was a stairway that went up to Conrad Lawrence's apartment. So the first day that he opens the door and it allows the goose to follow him into the house. The goose gets inside the house and it freaks out. It has never been totally surrounded by a building before. Well, it sees the window at the end of the hall and goes running straight for the window. And then realizes it can't get out. By that time, Conrad Lawrence has gone up the stairs, so the goose turns around and follows him up the stairs. Okay. Next day, he enters the house. Goes from the door to the window, back up the stairs. Third day, door, window, back to the stairs, up the stairs. And as time progressed, his, his little, the trip to the window got shorter and shorter and shorter. Until finally what he would do is he would go to the far end of the staircase, shake his foot at the window. <laughs> <laughs> and head up the stairs. <clears throat> Until one night, Conrad Lawrence came back from work really late, hadn't fed the goose. The goose was famished. And so Conrad Lawrence opens the door and the goose goes up the stairs. And it gets about halfway up the stairs and stops. It starts shaking all over, you know, like gooses do. Geese do. Okay, and then he went downstairs, back to the window, up, up to the <laughs> <laughs> And our problem as meditators is that we're not very different from that goose. <laughs> we have it all mapped out. You, you have to think about this a bit, think about that a bit, yell at yourself a bit, then finally move over here, and then finally get the mind to settle down. What you might do as an exercise sometimes is give yourself 10 minutes to meditate. And say, I've got 10 minutes to get the mind down. And then you find, boom, you can do it. And they say, okay, what's the difference between that and when you have an hour to meditate and it takes 55 minutes to get the mind settled down? Because <laughs> you've given yourself all this time to kind of glide down into the meditation. So learn to be more efficient. Notice, okay, when the mind is settled, where does it focus? what needs to be done in order to establish that as a solid focus and do just that. I think part of our problem is also if you're working on concentration, your mind gets settled within the first minute, five minutes and you say, okay, what do I do now? And the, and the answer is just stay right there. You don't have to do anything. Just learn how to stay. That's the next issue. And then you develop your staying techniques. You know, the sort of the settle in technique is one technique. Your staying techniques are a whole different set. So focus on, okay, what are your problems? Are your problems settling down or is your problem in staying? And in, in line with that third one about being specific in what your focus is, you focus on a particular issue, particular problem each time you meditate. <clears throat>
what you might do before each meditation is ask yourself, okay, what are my problems as I meditate? And decide, okay, I'm going to work on one of them. Pick that problem and work with it. Go with it. See how far you can get. Sixth principle in good training, which applies both to meditating as well as to swimming, is that you need periods of recovery. You can't just push, 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 push all the time. There has to be a time when you relax, when you pull back. Now, the trick in pulling back is that you don't just drop everything. You try to maintain proper form. Now, in the, in the swimming, they say, when you find that you're pushing yourself too hard, then you go back to easier exercises, but maintain, make, make sure you maintain your proper form. Don't lose that when, you, when you're practicing. And it's the same in the meditation. You may decide that you've got to let back, pull back a little bit, but always have a meditation session once a day. And you may not have to push yourself, just try to maintain your proper, what would be your proper form as a meditator. Physical posture, okay. Keep your focus with the breath and keep it light. And then the seventh principle is that you realize that your, your training is going to have to go through cycles. You'll have cycles of pushing, cycles of pulling back. Cycles of push again, pulling back. And since the pulling back doesn't mean that you stop practicing, simply that you let up on the, stre- you know, the strenuous nature. What's, 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 what's the noun of strenuous? Strenuosity? <laughs> Strenicity? <laughs> strenuousness? <laughs> anyway, you let up on the strenuousness of your practice. And also find ways to introduce variety. And it's in the introducing of variety that you start, because what you're doing here is you're not simply putting in effort. You're also using those other bases for success. You're paying attention to what you're doing, because especially if you want to learn to do something more efficiently, you have to pay very, very careful attention to what you're doing so you can see what's wasted movement and what's not. And then secondly, just sort of monitoring your progress so you know when you're pushing yourself too hard, not pushing yourself enough. That requires that you watch over your effort. So it's not just plain effort. It's effort combined with attention or intentness and your powers of discrimination. Any questions on those? Yes? The seven, yeah, okay. Okay, one is, they, they, they call the first element stress, basically giving yourself a workload. Second one is progressive overload. The third is specificity. The fourth is consistency. And the fifth one they name progression, but when they define progression, it means working on the efficiency of your practice. The sixth is recovery training. In other words, you keep on training, but you let up on the intensity. And then the seventh one is realizing that you have to go in cycles.
It's more a question of learning how to live with your desire for the goal in an intelligent way. If the fear is just overcoming so that you, you know, it paralyzes you, okay, then, it's, then, then that's an unskillful fear. But if it's simply a reminder that I don't want to lose, I want to keep going. Um, in the case of Ajahn Mun, there was a, in, in the biography, there's a, what's called his final sermon. And one of his final comments is, is, as a meditator, there's one thing you should never let go, and that's your desire, your determination not to come back and suffer again. Right, right. As being a sportsman? Right. Mm-hmm. Especially as a sportsman, you have to realize okay, the world is not going to end if you lose. So it keeps, keeps some sort of perspective on that desire. But when they, when they analyzed people like Michael Jordan and Wayne Gretzky, they saw that you know, they, part of their motivation was not only the, the joy of the game, but also they, they wanted to cover all their bases so they would never have to lose because of a stupid move. I mean, it's inevitable that people are going to, you're going to lose a game, but you never want to lose because of a stupid mistake. And so for that reason, that would motivate them to practice, practice, practice again. They talk about Wayne Gretzky, that after, even after the rest of the team had left, the, left the, you know, the, the practice field, he would stay on for an extra hour and just keep hitting the pucks, hitting the pucks, hitting the pucks, giving himself you know, different, exor- different exercises to perfect. Now, someplace in there, there was that basic desire not to lose. But instead of just dwelling on his fear of losing, he just went out and worked, 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 worked. And it wasn't just putting in the effort, but was also trying to use an intelligent effort so that the time spent practicing was well spent. You want, to have, you want to have a set of priorities in your goals? Okay, okay, the ultimate goal is to put an end to suffering. Maybe a little bit further down to be a good sports person. And then you might have other lower goals. And so then you, then you just learn how to budget your time. 
as to how much time is this worth. Because it's, I mean, you know, the, 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 the talents you develop as a sports person can very effectively be brought to the meditation. You know, the Zen masters will have you, have you practice archery or, or flower arranging or something before you become a meditator. And I found in my own case as a teacher, um, people who have developed a skill of one kind or another are a lot easier to teach than people with no skills. I had a personal trainer come to the monastery one time. And so I gave a Dharma talk on, you know, meditation and like going down to the gym. And, you know, just, you know, he was able to pick up on all the messages because he had had those particular experiences. I had another student one time who was having a lot of problems. Either it was just, you know, overwhelming desire to practice followed by days when you didn't want to practice at all. Back and forth, back and forth like this. And I said, well, think of some skill that you've mastered in the past that and get a sense of, okay, exactly how did desire play a role in the mastering of the skill? When was it getting in the way? When was it useful? And try to use that experience that you had and apply it to your meditation. We went back that night, and the next morning he came back and he said, I don't have any skills. (laughs) (laughs) He was impossible to teach. (laughs) Yes. Ultimately, ultimately, you can. Well, yeah. in the lay world? N- not, not as a surgeon, no. Yeah. 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 Or, or uh, I mean, for example, even in something as aesthetic as painting, mm-hmm. like, like I do it as a pleasurable form mm-hmm. and don't get hung up if it doesn't turn out right. But someone who wants to show and make money out of it, mm-hmm. there's a lot more stress and tension right. than that. That's why they say it's that element they discovered in all of these, there was an element of fear operating in the background. That, okay, what happens if I don't do well? And that was part of their motivation. So the the question ultimately is, when you're learning a skill like this, exactly how good do you want to be? How much do you want to suffer in order to get good at this particular skill? There was a great, I think it was a guide, I forgot what the name was, it was some sort of gentleman's guide back in the Renaissance. And they're talking about how to get good at this sport and how to be good at that sport. And then they finally said, well, as for chess, you don't want to be too good. Because to be really good at chess requires an awful lot of time. And it's not worth it. <laughs> and so they said, be moderately good at, at chess. And so you look at the you know, potential, the amount of time you have, the particular skill you want to master, and ask yourself, okay, is this my top priority? Do I really want to give myself to this skill? Or would I rather save my time for meditation? And I would recommend to all of you that you know, meditation should be your number one skill, number one priority. Other things can be helpful. And it's good to have you know, alternative skills just to take the pressure off. And as my teacher once said, if you meditate all day long, you're going to go crazy. 
to have another skill to work with. What was interesting about all these, these people who were highly skilled was they usually had two or three other skills as well. The surgeons were always good musicians. And many times they were good athletes as well. But they really excelled at the surgery. Yeah. Okay, to get back to the other qualities they found in that article. The quality that in, in corresponds to intent or intentness was the fact that these people were always very careful about what they did. In the sense of the surgeon, he, he would plan out his surgeries beforehand, kind of run it through his mind, and then watch very carefully while he was doing it to make sure that what he was doing was fitting in with a sort of his pre, you know, the preview tape. After the surgery was over, he'd run the tape through again to make sure that what he had done corresponded. Jack Nicholas once said that he never made a shot without having gone through it mentally first in his mind, just to think of how he's going to do it. And it's similar many times for musicians. I mean, this doesn't mean that everything is going to have to go as planned, but at least you have a basic, you have a basic plan from which you operate. And finally, they said, was the ability to perceive patterns. And this was most important. This, this would correspond to the, the faculty of discrimination. Um, and this comes up, one, as you're practicing, you begin to see that there are certain steps that go together, that if you do this in your meditation, then this, this, this will follow. And after a while, that becomes an automatic, automatic pattern. You perceive that pattern. Um, psychologists call that chunking, that you perceive the different elements that you put into the meditation in chunks rather than as individual steps. Once you perceive that pattern, then you can play with it. We'll get, we'll get back to that in a minute. But the ability to perceive patterns also depends on the ability to perceive mistakes. One of the surgeons that was interviewed was saying that many times he was really upset when they had to, when they had to fire a surgeon from a, you know, from a particular hospital over some mistakes they had made. What scared him was that those surgeons never even realized they had made mistakes. They always felt, well, this was something that was beyond my control. And they never really looked at what they had done. And so that as a result of this, this particular surgery, unit decided to formulate a series of questions to weed out potential bad surgeons. Um, and you have to realize, this is, this is, we're talking brain surgery here. You know, when someone applies to be a brain surgeon, they've got good grades. They've got good recommendations. Now, just because they have good grades and good recommendations doesn't mean they'll be good surgeons. But based on this one surgeon's experience, seeing that you know, the, the disastrous surgeons were the ones who didn't even realize they had made mistakes, they decided that they added two questions to the, the interview. Well, the first question was, can, can you tell us about a mistake you've made recently? Or else they might vary it by saying, what is the worst mistake you ever made? And if the person would think for a while and say, well, gee, you know, I'm, I don't usually make mistakes. Oh. <laughs> is this what? This is a test that our president is <laughs> 
he's proud of that fact, you know. He's been quoted as saying, I'm not the kind of guy who thinks back on what I've done in the past and how I might have done it differently. Mm. Hence, hence the problem, yes. So, I think that's his definition of macho. It's the Buddhist definition of a fool. <laughs> okay, at any rate, the second... <laughs> The second, the second follow-up question was if they talked about a mistake they had made. The next question was, if you had a chance to do it again, how would you do it differently? That's crucial. I mean, it's one thing to admit a mistake. The second thing, well, next time around, I'll do it this way to see. And, and it wouldn't matter what they had said, as long as they had showed that they had put some thought into the matter. Okay, that was a good potential surgeon. That was the kind of person you'd actually want in your brain. And so the, the, the faculty of discrimination here depends on one, seeing patterns, and then two, recognizing mistakes. And the two perceptions go together. Because you, you recognize the mistake. If you do this, 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 and this follows. If you do this, 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 and this follows. And you see which is the mistake and which is not the mistake. Yeah. Do you think there's an element, sometimes people don't see they make mistakes because they don't want to, like they have an image of themselves? Yeah. That's why I said earlier that that instruction on being truthful was, was essential to the, the quality of intentness and discrimination. And this shows why people who are proud are not necessarily skillful. In fact, their pride gets in the way of their skill. They, they mentioned that several of the people they, they interviewed for this particular article talked of their, you know, their physical abilities or their, their, their skills as something that was, that was a little bit beyond them that they weren't really responsible for. They had this ability, and they didn't let it go to their heads. Yeah. There's also, uh, I don't know if it's Gary Wick, the Zen teacher, Well, the Buddhist, you know, the beginning of wisdom, the Buddha said, is that, that very dumb question, what when I do, what will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness? Mm-hmm. Nothing about four noble truths, three characteristics, emptiness, nirvana, none of that stuff. It's all simple, basic stuff. Anything else? Yeah. One of the things that, that um, it makes it hard for people to see uh, mistakes or to admit them Psychology calls splitting all good or all bad. So if somebody has to see themselves in the world in that, in that, in that concept, they can't notice any flaw because then they become all bad. Mm-hmm. And of course, that gets well Well, this is why the, why the concept of skill is such a useful one to have because there are gradations. There's nothing is absolutely without skill or absolutely skillful, there are, there are gradations in between. So you can see yourself as kind of on the continuum, working your way up the ladder. And so admitting mistakes is not throwing you back at the, the bottom of the ladder. It's just realizing that you've got something more to work on. So which is, it's why I think you know, the Buddha was really, really intelligent in taking this as his basic distinction. That's sort of the basic concept he's working with, skill, because it's something that can be perfected.
And finally, the sort of putting it all together, they noticed that um, the people who were really good at a particular task, it was because that task captured their imagination. They could think about it, play with it in their minds. And this is why when you meditate, this is why you, you don't need to be just told technique, you also be to, need to be told, okay, why are we doing this? That gives a sense that not only is this an interesting technique that you're working with, but it has real potential, real possibilities. Um, this is what days like this are about, to get you to thinking about it and realizing what meditation can do. This is also why, on the one hand, we need Dharma doors. That when, when the technique is being explained, it has to be explained in terms that are appealing to the person who's listening, which may be appealing in one culture, but not necessarily in another culture. So we have to have a certain amount of translation into what's appealing here. The trick, of course, is that your Dharma door doesn't shut you off from further possibilities. Think of it as an opening, but then go from that opening to dig deeper into the practice. This is why I think you know the Buddha's the Buddha's skill is probably the ultimate skill because he promises the end of suffering. And that should be appealing to everybody. <laughs> You'd be it's amazing how many people argue against it. Um, and the fact that the Buddha discerned one of the really interesting patterns in causality was that by using conditions you can get to the unconditioned. You know you take you take your five khandhas and you turn them into a path. And then that path will take you opening to an opening to the unconditioned, which is beyond all the conditions. And that was a discovery that was so radical that there are even a lot of Buddhists today who don't believe it's possible. That's precisely how it worked. Now, in capturing your imagination, there also has to be the ability to improvise. As we talked about this a little bit earlier, that it can't just be kind of perfecting a, a you know, mechanical skill that doesn't grow anywhere. But you have to have your ability to do something above and beyond what you were taught. And John Lee makes this point. <clears throat> he says, if you want to be a good meditator, it's like learning how to be a good weaver. When you start out weaving, the teacher will teach you the different ways of weaving the strands, which in Thailand would be strands of bamboo or, or leaves or things. But he says, if you want the thing that you make in order to be beautiful, you have to observe what you've done and use your own powers of observation to come back with new ideas. And through that, after you perfect that, then you can start branching out again, thinking of other ways to weave, other patterns, other things you might weave. And that, in that sense, the skill becomes yours. Now, what, what is this ability to improvise if it's not a combination of discrimination, seeing the patterns that you've already mastered, and the desire to do more? So this is how learning the skills has a kind of a feedback element. You start with the desire. You build up through discrimination, and then using your powers of discrimination, you focus your desire in new directions. You think of new possibilities. Um, and you find that you can use your, use your powers of concentration, use your powers of meditation in directions you might not have assumed were possible. As you get into the meditation, you find you can do more and more. Um, Sometimes it comes up because you're forced to. <clears throat> when you're sitting in long periods of meditation and not allowed to move, you've got to figure out some way to make it comfortable. I mean, you can sit there and moan to yourself, oh, I'm just sitting here, I'm going to grit my teeth, I'm going to make it to the end of the hour, or the two hours, or the three hours, or whatever. 
Or you can tell yourself, okay, what can I do to... <laughs> what can I do to make it fun? What can I do to make it pleasurable? And then just you know, play with the breath, play with the way you focus. And in, in that, in part of it is being forced into that, then, then you start learning. And John Mahabhava has a passage, he says, you're never going to gain discernment until you really find yourself at the end of your rope. You've done all the techniques your teachers have taught you. You've done everything you've been told. And it's still not working. Okay, what are you going to do? And then it's, that's when you start improvising. Asking yourself different questions. Looking at things in different ways. I was mentioning this afternoon, that, that during the lunch hour, that John Lee, who was my teacher's teacher, formulated a method of breath meditation that works with the breath energy in the body. And he did this when he was in the jungle He'd walked three days into the jungle, arrived to the spot where he was planning to spend the rains, and within a day or two he had a heart attack. And if he was going to get out of there, he was going to have to walk out. And so he sat down and he started working with his breath energy and basically put himself back together again. And in the course of that, worked out a new technique for breath meditation, which was the technique he then taught for the rest of his life. But it was being, I mean, really, really corny. Can you imagine yourself in the jungle, no medicine? You've had a heart attack. Um, most of the hill tribes' food that they were giving him had a lot of um, bamboo shoots. Now, if you ever have heart problems, don't eat bamboo shoots, okay? <laughs> the worst thing you can take for a heart. And all he had was his breath. So he explored his breath, found out what things he could do with it, how to breathe in certain ways that would sort of pull his health back together again. So it's in that ability to work within constrictions, within restrictions. Take the skills that you've got and then start using your powers of improvisation. The two words that my teacher used to stress more, more often than any other words in his meditation instructions were one, be observant, two, improvise. In Thai, in Thai that was chai kwam sangate, you got chai patipan. So that when you come up with problems, you know, figure out something new for yourself. And it's not just playing around, because it's in, it's in your ability to come up with those new approaches that real discernment arises. Discernment is not just a matter of you know, doing what you're told and following the instructions and then awakening comes out as an end. And that's kind of like the factory approach. You, know? you, you add all the instructions and whoop, there you've got, you've got your product. But real discernment comes from that ability to look at a situation, okay, see what you already know, see what the patterns are there, and then play with the pattern and adjust it. And when you develop that ability to play with the pattern that you, from your experience, that's when real insight arises. Playing with a pattern and then basically passing judgment on the results. Yes. I was going to save that for the next. We're going to have a break pretty soon. And then after the break, we'll walk, work on that. Because there's a sutta that specifically deals with that. Yes.